The Nordcast, Episode 7, February 27, 2007. Welcome to the first Fenordcast of 2007, Episode 7. Now somehow, according to the Secret Masters, that fits into their plan, but they're not telling us how. Coming up, Paul and I give you the gamer's eye view of GURPS Ultratech. The Warehouse 23 guys come in to talk about one of our newest favorite games here in the office. And we have the audio version of Steve's 2006 Stakeholders Report. One of the very first forum posts after the print version came out was, When will we hear it on the Fenordcast? Answer, right now. Hi, I'm going to do the report to the stakeholders for 2007 here. Last year when I did the report, I stressed because I was reading from a script, the report that had already been printed, and I really sounded like I was reading, and I didn't want to sound like I was reading, and yada, yada, yada. Okay, this year I'm reading, and I'm not stressing. Steve Jackson Games Incorporated has a single stockholder, me. But we have a great many stakeholders, that is, people who have a stake in the success of the business. These include our employees, our distributors, the retailers who carry our line, and, of course, the people who play our games. Less obvious stakeholders, but very real, are the creative talents who produce our games, the printers who create the finished product, the volunteers who demonstrate our games at conventions and retail stores, and the convention organizers who depend on us for game programming, prizes, and so on. We try to stay in good communication with all our stakeholders. The main avenues of communication are our website, the catalogs and other marketing material that we distribute, and the letters that go to the 150-plus people and companies to whom we pay quarterly or monthly royalties. But for the past three years now, I have written a report, not unlike the report to the stockholders that you would expect from a public company. It's a useful exercise for me, and I have gotten a surprising amount of favorable feedback from all levels of the hobby. So here it is again. My 2006 report didn't appear until the year was more than half over. I'm pleased that this one is more timely. We are, as I assume the reader knows, a publisher of games. Not all of these are physical products. A number of them are digital downloads, PDFs, and a few other types of file sold through our E23 site. An online game, UltraCore, has been almost ready for more than a year, but I expect that, no kidding, it will launch very soon. We also publish two online magazines, Pyramid and the Journal of the Traveler's Aid Society. We have been in business since 1980. We employ, at the moment, 14 full-time staff and need a few more, plus a number of contractors and part-time personnel. Eh, compared to this time last year, we have fewer full-time staff, but more contractors for about the same number of workers. Our 2006 gross was a bit less than $2.4 million, about the same as 2005. At this writing, the books are not closed, so we may make a small profit or a small loss, depending on accounting decisions, but it was a good year with excellent cash flow. Our fiscal health is good. 2007 is shaping up as a strong and profitable year. More on this below. Our most important product is now clearly the Munchkin card game. 
With its sequels and supplements, Munchkin accounted for over 55% of our sales in 2006 and is now available in nine languages. The GURPS role-playing system, with more than 100 titles in print, is the other main component of our sales. Uh, significant changes for 2006. Uh, this was a year of consolidation in our new offices and adaptation to a changing marketplace. There really weren't any big changes in the way we did business. Getting used to nice surroundings proved very easy. High points. 2006 was a good year, not because we did anything new and amazing, but because hard work over the last few years paid off. Sales were very strong. Our greatest failure in 2006 stemmed from this success. We let Munchkin sales surprise us. We allowed some Munchkin products to go out of print, which is like leaving money on the table. Sales were very heavily weighted toward the holiday buying season. Licensing income, mostly from Munchkin, also continued to be significant. Warehouse 23, our online store, remains an important part of our overall operation. We are the exclusive online retailer for several high-quality publishers, including Atlas Games and Grey Ghost Press. Our customer service continues to be a point of personal pride for me. We're planning to add more space for Warehouse 23 this year by installing a mezzanine floor in our warehouse, and we intend to update our online shopping cart to more closely integrate Warehouse 23 and E23. Our digital product division, E23, has been in operation for two years. It is now the second largest seller of downloadable files for the gaming community. This is not just due to increased sales, though they have increased. Our larger competitors merged into a single company, one bookshelf. As 2006 ended, we had just over 1,400 files available for download. Um, update, more than 1,500 now. We are continuing to create original releases for E23 and to contract with more third-party publishers of quality PDFs. The original releases are better selling and more profitable, but we will continue to offer other publishers material. We don't want E23 to become a pure company store, and we do want to take advantage of the long tail effect. We'll continue to offer PDF versions of our new GURPS books, but only after they are available in stores for three months. This was an experiment in 2006, and nothing bad came of it. Print-on-demand. 2006 saw our first use of print-on-demand technology, and the experiment was successful. GURPS Biotech was made available in a limited pod edition before the main print run reached our shores, GURPS Mysteries, originally a PDF file sold only in E23, was so popular that we used POD to release a softcover version. We will be doing more POD books in 2007. Business organization, uh, this continued to improve. Our financials are up to date. We completely replaced our royalty system with custom written code. The new system promises to turn a quarterly death march into a fairly routine procedure. Update, we just got finished with the fourth quarter 2006 royalties, and yeah, things went pretty well, so I'm happy there. Okay, now the department of eh. Some parts of our operation did not fully succeed, nor did they exactly fail, but they took up enough of our attention to be worth mentioning. UltraCore. This online game project has gone much more slowly than intended and has taught us some useful lessons in the process. 
When we launch, we'll let the fans tell us whether we have a viable product. I think it's a lot of fun myself. Digital games. We have still neither released a homegrown digital version of one of our products, nor entered a licensing relationship with a major publisher. As I reported in mid-2006, we haven't given up. We're just forcing ourselves to prioritize our successful hard copy sales first. We are still actively seeking partners among the major console and PC publishers, as well as among wireless, that is, phone or mobile game publishers. The first priority remains to implement some of the existing products in our catalog, but I'm excited about the chance to do new designs for the digital media. New servers. The servers that run our website and internal services, including backups, were overdue for replacement. We started that replacement in 2006, but it cost too much and never finished, thanks to an unsuccessful attempt to outsource the project. As of this writing, we think it's back on track with a competent, full-time, in-house IT manager. Okay, failures. Things that definitely didn't go as they should have. Staff. Our staff has been stable since the last report, but we remain significantly understaffed. Over the past few years, hiring the wrong person has proven to be a worse mistake than hiring nobody at all, so we've become very cautious. We are talking with candidates for two positions as this is written. Update, still true. But during 2006, some employees were seriously overworked and behind on their projects. Scheduling. Our ability to make and meet schedules simply collapsed in 2006. We were kept afloat and even in a very good cash position by Munchkin, uh, but then it was attempting to keep a dozen very popular Munchkin products in print all at once that did us in. With a single employee acting as both print buyer and production manager, and with the duties of managing editor falling between that same employee and me, or simply falling through the cracks, much of the year was a constant flip-flop between must get the new product to press and must keep all the munchkin sets in print. The result was that we succeeded in neither. Time and resources were not allocated effectively. Almost every new product was delayed. A couple now are still 90% done and more than a year overdue. And munchkin was not always available to distributors who were crying for it. The blame for this has to be laid at the end on my own doorstep because I'm responsible for setting priorities and I didn't scale our priorities to our ability to follow through. So for 2007, priorities will be different. More on this below. State of the industry. Quick card games and longer European style board games dominated our hobby in 2006. Role-playing continued its slump, and some commentators began to throw around phrases like death spiral. Pre-painted miniatures, with and without clicky bases, continued to increase in variety and quality, bringing more players back into miniature gaming. Two high-profile publishers left the industry in 2006, and one changed hands. Eagle Games, best known for high-ticket board games, went out of business quite suddenly, leaving inventory to be sold at auction. Guardians of Order, publisher of a variety of mostly licensed RPGs, ran out of money and ceased operations. White Wolf Publishing, best known for the World of Darkness RPG, became a subsidiary of the Icelandic company CCP, publisher of the massively multiplayer game EVE Online. 
As of now, we have only speculation about what that might mean to the hobby as a whole. SJ Games continues to work with various hobby industry partners to accomplish shared goals. These include the distributors with whom we have flooring contracts, thus making it easier for retailers to carry our full line, PSI, our fulfillment agent for other distributor sales, several overseas publishers who are creating translations of Munchkin releases on a regular basis, and a few who are translating other games, notably GURPS 4th edition, Adventure Retail, which represents us at Origins, Gen Con, and other major conventions, and the growing number of publishers, small and large, who are distributing digital product through E23. We still believe this sort of cooperation is our future. Looking forward, we anticipate our 2007 revenues to be higher and our production of new games to be lower because our 07 plan involves facing the reality of our current position. We have only so many hours in the day, and the effort of reprinting a Munchkin product is far less than that required to create a brand new game. And the average payback is much better. Munchkin has the potential to do a lot for this company in the next few years if we treat the game and its fans right. So, the very highest priority is to keep the existing Munchkin line in print. We will do this by more careful tracking of sales, by ordering reprints well before we expect to need them, and by heartlessly pushing everything else to the side when a reprint needs production resources. The second priority, and the highest priority for my own time, is to support Munchkin with new releases. There will be at least two new Munchkin games and at least two new expansion sets in 2007. The third priority is to keep the GURPS core books in print. The fourth priority is to support GURPS with new releases. There will be hardbacks, but probably only two in 2007, plus Ultratech, which belonged in 2006 and was delayed. Replacing the other books will be a roughly equivalent amount by word count of PDF items in E23. This will range from very short, 16 pages or so, to around 120 pages. And the fifth priority is to release new board and card games. Since I really like working on new games, it bothers me that this item is so low on the totem pole, especially since some of the games in our pipeline have a lot of promise. Beyond a doubt, some work will get done on them, but they won't be assigned to press dates, let alone ship dates, because at such a low priority, any claim to a particular slice of calendar time is pure wishful thinking. All the way down in sixth priority is keep thinking about digital games. I will be going to GDC 2007 and doing a presentation and talking to people. I would dearly like to have something happen, but if it happens, it will be in its own good time. In the long run, we want to back our existing hits and work on new games that might be next year's hits. We look forward to redeveloping the ability and the staff to do more things at once. Thanks, as always, for your support. The van from Los Angeles will go to you know where. So my name is Nicholas Vasek. I'm the Warehouse 23 troubleshooter. And my name is Randy Schooneman. I am the Master of Shipping. And we're here today to do a shameless plug for a game called Geos. It was designed by Rene Weersma. Weersma? Rene Weersma? We're not sure. He's either French or German, I think. <laughs> but we don't know. <laughs> but he made a pretty good game here. It's a very European-style game because it's abstract. 
there's not a close connection between the game mechanics and the theme of the game. The theme of the game, uh, by the way, overall concept is that you are playing a primeval god at the beginning of time, and you're creating the world, and the other players are also gods, and you're vying for... Followers. Followers. Population. You're trying to get more population uh, worshipping you, because that gives you points. The components are similar to that of Carcassonne. The gameplay is different, but the components are similar looking. It's cardboard, cardstock. Triangular tiles. Tiles, and then wooden pieces. The primary mechanic is tile placement. You start out at the beginning of the game with an empty board, and players have tiles in their hand that they play out on their turns to develop the board or grow the world. And you can either build land masses or break them apart, uh, divide continents, split oceans, uh, do a number of different maneuvers to try and kill other players' followers or build a larger follower base of your own, and the player with the largest score at the end of the game wins. There are five different colored wooden pieces that represent races, but you don't get a color. Like, you don't say, I'm green at the beginning of the game. You can be all the colors or none or two or three or whatever. And the color of your followers can change throughout the course of the game is the other thing. It it plays differently from other games. It's kind of disconcerting to start with. It's not too hard to learn. If you start with three green followers and... The guy to your left has two green followers, and the guy to the left of him has no green followers. He can, through the course of the game, possibly kill off the green race using the blue race. The blue race comes in and wipes out the green race, and uh, he has two blue race people. So now you guys have no followers because they all died out. It can be a very back-and-forth game. Uh, You can end up picking sides. There can be a little bit of diplomacy. Relative strengths can change pretty rapidly through the game. Different races are started and grow and then die off or change sides or whatever. For every good strategy you have, if you try to go too hard in one direction of tile placement, then there is a counter strategy that can completely foil your plans really, really, really quickly. Uh, The game has multiple ways of ending. You could end up uh, pulling all the tiles out of the box and pretty much finishing the game that way or all but the last few. Or you could still have half a box full of tiles in some games. and Depending on the, how things play out. How you how the players play. You can end the game before the entire map is placed. It's a fun game. We sell it in Warehouse 23. It's made by a company called Z-Man Games. They suggest two to four players. We've played it with everyone All in that range. We've also played it with five players. We feel that three is the best number of players. It offers you enough competition, enough other strategy at the table to where when somebody starts to get ahead there are two people to counter him. But at the same time it offers you enough control to play out your strategy that you have and that you're planning to play. When you get too many players you end up having one turn being irrelevant as far as the next one is because of the way the board is changed. Because individually each player has less control. But it can still be done. We've proven that you can play with five. Yes. I didn't really get into the theme of the game. I wasn't standing around I am a god. You know, I didn't get a complex while I was playing it. I just kind of went for the strategy. It's a very strategic game because you don't have any dice rolls. That that randomness isn't in there, and you don't have any card drawing. The only randomness is the tiles that you draw, and the rest of it's pretty much strategy. And because the theme is so loosely connected to the game mechanics, you could play this with friends who are non-gamers or non-hardcore gamers um, and just not tell them that they represent gods and they won't even know. 
It's a little bit more complicated than you'd want for a beer and pretzels night with this. If you're not really focused on what you're doing, it's probably not going to be as fun. So it's more of a, we're sitting down to have a nice, you know, a game night. But it plays fast, so you can get several games in in a given game night. Or if you only have a little bit of time, you can sit down and play one quick one. The box claims 45 to 60 minutes, and after you know what you're doing, that's, that's pretty probably accurate. pretty accurate. But again, the game name is Gaos. We sell it at Warehouse 23 at MSRPs for around $25. And you should buy it. You should buy it. Buy it from us. Get your friends to play it. They'll love it. And they will. And have them buy a copy from us, too. Han Solo removes the floppy disk. You probably recognize me. I'm Paul Chapman. I'm the marketing director here at Steve Jackson Games. And I'm Will. I'm in charge of the art and the podcasting. Yes. So last week, GURPS Ultratech was released. And as uh, we did with GURPS Biotech, we are now sitting down with the book and going through it not as publishers but as gamers. Yes, you can hear the pages ruffling. Yes. We'll be referring to them. This is really the first time we've gotten to sit down and go, ooh, that's cool. And Paul's going to be talking more than me. That's because I do a lot more GURPS than he does. Yeah. We're going to just kind of jump around the book a bit um, because I've got my top five list of things that I love about GURPS Ultratech. Of course, as I've mentioned in previous Nordcasts, science fiction is my genre of choice. Um, And so Ultratech is really one of the books I really, really waited for. Yeah, he was geeking out over the damage potential of a particle weapon of some sort (laughs) earlier in the day. The uh, partially portable particle cannon or something like that. I forget which gun it was, but we'll look that up a little bit later. My number one favorite item in this book is, oddly enough, not a gun or a widget or anything like that. It's an image. Uh, It's the image of the gun-toting grandma on page 64. Which, from the um, art director perspective, is actually the terahertz radar illustration. But you can call it the gun-toting grandma if you want. It's got a grandma who's got a bunch of guns on her. And ammo and explosives and... Has kind of a Total Recall vibe to it, too. Yeah. There are a lot of things in this book, art-wise, that I really, really, really like. Uh, The guns chapters, which are traditionally just big piles of tables, you know, rate of fire and shots and bulk and things like that. But there's quite a few images of what a needler might look like and what a wrist needler looks like compared to a normal needler. Also machine guns and graviton beam guns. Where's the, oh, there's the uh, semi-portable pulsar. was the one that looks like a baby whale with handles. It's awesome. 6D times 4 with a armor modifier of 3. Armor and weapons brings us to the uh, number two thing on my top five list of things I love about this book. Uh, it is on page 148. The exact title of this section is Typical Weapons by TL. And this combined with the typical armor by TL on page 186, quite possibly the two most useful pages in this friggin' book. You know what generally kind of weapons you want to use in your game, so you look them up on this chart, and that gives you an idea what the general TL of the campaign is going to be, which solves a lot of other questions of, okay, if everybody's going to be walking around with blaster carbines, what's that going to mean for 
everything else? What kind of armor should I have? What kind of gadgets go along with that sort of tech level? It's a great shortcut for designing a campaign. It'd also be a great shortcut if you were just landing on some random planet and the guys are like, okay, what what's out there? Uh, it's tech level 11, so they, they must have these kind of guns. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of landing on weird planets, uh, my number three item is on page 74, Expedition Gear. Seems like every sci-fi game I run ends up exploring some long-forgotten alien planet. So this chapter is definitely going to be used a lot. Everything from the hover cart and in, in survival module to the vapor canteen, flashlights, glow sticks. Oh, so it's good stuff. Moving right on to uh, item number four. This one is on page... Well, it's not really page. It's the entire first chapter. If you put your list in order, one to five, it would be easier to find things. Yeah, but yeah, it would have. But for those of you not in the studio, Paul's list is four, one, three, two, five. <laughs> well, I I wrote them all down and then I just kind of ranked them after that. I could read down a list, do number four first, but what would be the sense of that? Anywho, my favorite part of chapter one, the uh, ultra technology chapter, is technology paths. Uh, you'll remember that from the third edition versions of Ultratech and Ultratech 2. Um, that's the section that lets you figure out what tech level are most cyberpunk games. Um, and if I want to do a radical hard sci-fi or a high biotech game, what kind of uh, tech level does that imply? This is almost purely a campaign design chapter. Oh, the uh, TL progression start dates chart very nice buying equipment black market equipment stats modifying equipment for size modifiers legality and antiques lots of stuff for a gm who's building a campaign whether or not he'll run it actually ever that's beside the point but having the stuff there is uh, good number five is a bit that doesn't come up in a whole lot of different games, but I had a character that these rules would have been perfect for, and I really wish I'd had them at the time. Tailoring armor on page 174. There's a section describing how to take normal armor and change it so you can have a, a ballistic evening wear dress or a uh, ablative business suit. I had a Shadowrun character who tried to be very stylish at all times, and going into combat with business suits on isn't a real good idea. So I, I had to kind of come up with stuff for tailoring armor. That's one of the parts of the book that has many vignettes in between the rules, too. Because the illustration is for the, the character who is in those vignettes. She's a police officer that goes to a formal party undercover, so she has to have an evening dress that will block a laser. So the vignettes basically walk you through creating her ballistic nano-weave low-cut evening gown, um, and then, of course, changes in price and weight and whatnot. The final vignette is, it's an exclusive party, so Alice orders a fashion original. She's now dressed to kill with an evening gown that has DR12-4 over 
half her front torso, the groin, and half her legs, costing $4,600, weighs 1.53 pounds, and is LC4. And there is a really cool illustration of uh, Captain Alice firing a laser pistol from behind an overturned dining table. Yeah, the party turns out just like she was expecting it to. As all good PC parties should. Yes, and we can't end this preview without mentioning my favorite thing nearly in the entire book, Black Ops Robot Nanomorph, which (laughs) is just a cool thing to say. But, you know, that Terminator 2 kind of blobby silver creature that can do whatever it wants and fit anywhere it wants and invade and maim and destroy anything it wants, (laughs) that's in there too, as are lots of safer and nicer pieces of equipment. Yeah. And a few more dangerous. Oh, yeah. There's lots of little tidbits in there that just... You could almost build a session off from just one piece of equipment. Overall, for a science fiction GM, GURPS Ultratech is absolutely indispensable. There is so much stuff in here. Even if you don't use all the stuff that's in the tables and the gear and all that stuff, the first two chapters, Ultra Technology and Core Technologies, are invaluable for making you think about what gear is available in your game and what it does to your game. You can now consider your year officially kicked off. Episode 8 is growing in the vat right now, and it looks like there's a Dr. Crom segment in there somewhere. We'd like to hear any questions and comments you might have for us, either in the forums at sjgames.com or to fenordcast at sjgames.com. The Fenordcast is a production of Steve Jackson Games. All our music written and performed by Tom Smith at TomSmithOnline.com. <laughs>